0: open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, We are beginning a new series on what are called the Servant Songs of Isaiah. Uh, I'll be honest, it's a bit daunting to preach uh, through these texts, in part because the Old Testament prophets can be difficult to understand, uh, and because prophecies about Jesus in particular uh, are full, they're dense, they're rich, they're sometimes surprisingly complex. Uh, And so it is for me, and I hope for you as well, a comfort uh, when we read in First Peter chapter 1, uh, that even the prophets themselves didn't understand everything that they were saying to their contemporaries. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, as to this great salvation in Jesus Christ, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And then Peter writes that even the angels of God longed to gain a clearer glimpse into this glorious gospel of Jesus. And so my prayer is that as we spend our time these next few weeks in these prophecies from Isaiah, that you too will gain a a clearer glimpse into the riches of Jesus Christ. So hear God's word, Isaiah chapter 42, we'll read verses one to nine. Isaiah writes, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you that 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, you predicted his coming, you told your people what was to come, you are the only God, the sovereign king, the ruler of the ends of the earth. Lord, we ask that you would come now and draw near to us by your Holy Spirit so that we might understand and that we might see, that we might behold your servant, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. In Acts chapter 8, there is this amazing story of Philip the evangelist and an Ethiopian government official. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip one day in the city of Samaria and said, you need to get up and you need to go south to a desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip did that. He obeyed. And lo and behold, he came upon an Ethiopian eunuch who was the treasury secretary for the Ethiopian queen named Candace. Somehow this Ethiopian eunuch had become a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he had been in Jerusalem worshiping and was on his way back to Ethiopia. He was reading out loud, as was the practice in those days, from the book of Isaiah. And Philip heard him reading. And Philip goes up to the chariot and says, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian says this, how can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip up into the chariot and it so happened that he was reading Isaiah chapter 53. And so he asked Philip, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And then Dr. Luke writes these words, then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. In Isaiah chapter 53, as well as Isaiah 42 that we have just read this morning, and Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 7, and Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 11, we have what have come to be called the servant songs. Not because they were sung, but because they are poetic descriptions of an individual identified as the Lord's servant who will carry out God's purposes for his covenant people and not just for the covenant people of Israel, but for the nations. And he'll do this as a servant through suffering. Now, there's much debate among biblical scholars over how to understand the identity of this servant in Isaiah, but Acts 8 that I've just told you about is one of the New Testament passages that has led the church to confess that these texts in Isaiah ultimately speak about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're not surprised when we hear Peter and the early church in Acts 3 and 4 speak of Jesus as God's holy servant. Or of Paul in Philippians 2 when he writes that in the incarnation, Jesus took the form of a servant. Jesus himself called himself the light of the world taken from these passages in Isaiah. He declared in in Matthew 20 and in Mark 10 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Where does that come from? But from Isaiah The apostles, not only had some of them heard Jesus say these things, but they themselves had read and had studied the the book, or might we say the gospel of Isaiah. And they themselves had learned that the Messiah was the Lord's servant, that his ministry was one of obedience and of suffering. And so over the next several weeks, we are going to be unpacking these texts from Isaiah to learn more about who Jesus is, and what he came to do as the Lord's suffering servant. But as we see these things, my prayer is that we would also see who we are in Jesus Christ and what God, through his Son, has sent us into the world to do as his suffering servants. So this morning we are looking here at Isaiah 42, the first servant song. But to get to where we need to go, first we need to see how we got where we are. The book of Isaiah is a long book. Perhaps it's a a daunting book to you. You've never read all 66 chapters of it, but I encourage you to do that. Uh, The book of Isaiah can be divided into two main sections. First, chapters 1 to 39, and second, chapters 40 to 66. In the first section, Isaiah is calling God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah to repent of their sin. And he predicts God's judgment upon them through the nation of Assyria. Isaiah is called by God back in Isaiah chapter 6, and in that section we read that 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 call came in the year that King Uzziah died, which was 740 BC. It was 18 years before Assyria would carry the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, 722 BC. In 701 BC, the Assyrian king Sennacherib invades Judah during King Hezekiah's reign. We read about that in chapters 36 to 38. Now, though God spared Judah the fate of Israel, the northern kingdom, he did not allow Assyria to take them into exile. Uh, Yet, in chapter 39, we read that the Babylonians will, in fact, take Judah into exile. That warning in Isaiah 39 leads us into the second section of this great book. Uh, this section 40 to 66 is written from the perspective of God's people who are in exile in Babylon because of their sin. And so when we start reading back in chapter 40, it's as if we've woken up a hundred plus years in the future from the events of chapter 39. The city of Jerusalem is a heap of ruins. The temple has been destroyed. There's been no king or priest or sacrifice for many years. And a remnant of Jews are living in Babylon, away from God's promised land. Isaiah's words in this this latter half of the book, written down long before they would actually apply to God's people, are meant to sustain and to strengthen the exiles, to comfort God's afflicted and fearful people in those dark days to come. He promises to restore them, to deliver them out of Babylon, to bring them back from exile. But more importantly, in this section, God reveals himself to them. The theme of Isaiah is God. The God, the Holy One of Israel that Isaiah saw back in chapter 6 when he was called. God wants his people to know how glorious he is. How gracious he is. Why? Well, because the eyes of his people, the hearts of his people, had been drawn away from him. And they had been drawn to idols and rebellious worship and living. And in the Babylonian captivity, it appears that the idols of Babylon have conquered and defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so in chapter 40, God begins by declaring that he is the only true God. He is the only creator and ruler of the nations. He is the one who works all things according to his purpose. And just as it was his purpose to send his people into exile and judgment for their sins, so it will be his purpose to deliver them from exile in Babylon. And he will use a Persian king named Cyrus to do this. Now, Cyrus will be mentioned by name later on in chapter 45, but in chapter 41, he's spoken of just as a king from the east and from the north. But what we have to see as we come to chapter 42 is that Cyrus is not the only deliverer to come. For Judah's problem was not merely that they were in exile. Judah's problem was their sin and their idolatry that had led them into exile. And so you see in chapter 41, verses 22 and 23, that God exposes the idols of the peoples as ignorant of the future, powerless to do anything. He had called his people to look and to see, to behold, says verse 24, that these idols are nothing. Their work is less than nothing. Those who choose you idols are an abomination. He had called his people in verse 29 to, to see that, that the, the, those who trust in idols were as false as their gods. A delusion, he says. Their works are nothing. Their middle images are empty wind. But now we come to chapter 42, verse 1. And we are introduced to another savior, to the servant, who will be a completely different type of deliverer from exile than Cyrus was. This servant is God's answer to the plight of a world ensnared in idolatry, a world without the revelation of God's word of grace. And God wants Israel, and God wants you this day to see this servant, to look at him, to behold him, to turn away from your idols, and to see that he is your only hope. Behold my servant, says God here he is. Take a look, take a long look, take a good look at who my servant is. And so this morning, I want us to do that. And I want us to to look at him by asking the question, why should we behold God's servant? And God gives us three answers in this text. First, because he is God's delight. Second, because his mission is glorious. And third, because his character is gentle. Let's Think about these three things this morning. First, behold God's servant because he is God's delight. God begins by telling us about his relationship with his servant. The servant is God's chosen one in whom his soul delights. You see, it's not merely that God has selected this servant to accomplish a task. No, this servant is God's chosen one. His beloved, he loves his servant with all his heart. He has set his affection upon him. Now think about all the the people that you have employed over the years to serve you. Maybe repairmen, electricians, plumbers, painters, handymen, auto mechanics, yardmen, all the folks who have served you in some sort of way. Now you probably didn't choose to hire these folks because you liked them or because you loved them, or because you were friends with them, or because you had an affection for them. Maybe you just heard good things about them from a friend or on next door. You have no relationship with these people. But God has called a servant in whom he delights. From the depths of who God is, his affection is upon him, and he has put his spirit upon him to equip him for the task before him. This servant is... God's chosen in whom his soul delights. Now, hopefully, when you hear that language, you say, wait a minute, I think I've heard that somewhere before. Where have we heard that language before? Well, of course, we've heard it at the baptism of Jesus, at the transfiguration of Jesus. In Luke 3:22, as John is baptizing his cousin Jesus, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. And a voice from heaven rings out, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well. Pleased, we hear that same language later on the Mount of Transfiguration. God is essentially repeating to Jesus of Nazareth, his son, what he declared of the servant Isaiah forty-two. In Luke nine thirty-five, it's explicit: "This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him." God the Father has chosen his beloved son, his one and only son, to accomplish this servant mission of rescuing those who are dead in sins and trespasses from their exile, not merely from the land of promise into Babylon, but from fellowship with God. They have been exiled into a far land. And Jesus of Nazareth is the beloved son of God, the chosen servant come to save God's people And because the servant is God's chosen one in whom his soul delights, Isaiah tells us that God upholds him. Look at verse 5, the God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The creator, the sustainer of the universe, this God holds his servant fast, as he says in Verse 6, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will guard you, I will watch over you. He holds him up, he holds him fast. He takes him by the hand, like a father leading his daughter as she walks on a balance beam, like a a, a father lifting up his son to dunk the basketball. God upholds and lifts up his servant's. He is the source of his servant's strength. He is the source of his servant's success in fulfilling his mission. Now, do you see what this means? Not just for Jesus, but for you. You see, if Jesus is God's chosen one, the one in whom his soul delights, the one who God sustains and supports with all of his mighty power, then what this means is that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you have been united to him by faith, if you are in him, you're a part of his body and he is your head, then don't you see that what this means is that in Jesus you too are chosen servants. You are beloved. You are delighted in by God. He upholds you day by day in his beloved son. Flip back to Isaiah 41, verses 8 to 10, and and notice how God uses the same language that he uses of the servant to speak of the servants of God, the Israelites. Verse 8 and 41, he says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. For I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Notice Isaiah calls israel god 's servants. He uses the same language that he had used there in verse chapter 42. How do we understand this dual usage? Well In his commentary on Isaiah, Joseph Addison Alexander, the son of Archibald Alexander, one of the very first professors of of Princeton Seminary in the early 1800s, uh, Joseph Alexander compares this dual usage to the way that the Bible speaks of Abraham's seed. It can refer to an individual, i.e. Jesus, or it can refer to this corporate group, the church of Jesus Christ. And so here, too, we are to understand Jesus as the servant in the truest and the highest sense. But he is the head of his body, the church, all those who trust in him, whether before he came or after he came. All of us are servants in him. We are chosen by God, delighted in by God, beloved by God, upheld by God, strengthened for service by God. What God thinks of his servant's son, he thinks of you. And that to which God has called his son as a servant, he has called you to as well. Which brings us to the second point. We must behold God's servant because his mission is glorious. Now what is a servant? When you hear that word, what do you think of? Well, a servant is someone who carries out a task for the one he serves. And God, through Isaiah, tells us here what the servant's mission was and is. Not just to deliver Israel from exile in Babylon, but to deliver God's people in Israel and in the nations from ignorance and from sin. And we see that mission described in a couple ways here. First, notice the three references to justice in verses 1 and 3 and 4. The text says that the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice, says verse 3. He will establish, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now, when we hear the word justice, we likely think of a, a just and a fair society in which order and righteousness and the rule of law reign, and, and people are getting what is rightly owed to them. And yes, it's true, the servant will bring about a perfectly just society but as alec motier notes a just society is derivative of the justice that is spoken of here notice in verse 4 the parallel between the servant establishing justice in the earth and the coastlands that is the nations waiting for hoping in his law his torah the word for justice is mishpat the word for law is torah We see the same parallel in Isaiah 51, verse 4, when Isaiah writes, A law will go out from God, and I will set my justice, my mishpat, for a light to the people. Torah is God's word, his instruction. Mishpat is referring to the word of God as well, you see, his revealed truth. Mishpat, and its sort of fundamental meaning, is a decision, a judgment of a king, of a judge. It's what has been authoritatively settled We see it in Psalm 119, the book of Deuteronomy, elsewhere, translated as the word judgment, or uh, rule, or decree. It is what has been settled and determined and passed down to the people of God for them to obey and to follow. That which God has judged to be right, which is a precept for us, his people. So when God says that his servant will bring forth and establish justice... He's essentially saying that his servant is going to function as a prophet, a new and a greater Moses declaring and and setting in place the word of God among the nations. Not just among Israel, you see, but among the nations. The servant songs, as we will see each week, are missionary songs. They are speaking of the way that Jesus, as the servant, will bring the whole world under his authority so that the whole world might walk in obedience to his judgments and might walk in justice and righteousness all their days. We read the same thing in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this glorious vision of the nations flowing to the house of God and saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of God, the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And then Isaiah says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge the root from which we get mishpat. He will judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. So when we see this word justice, we are to understand the, the whole of revealed religion, which the idolatrous nations do not have. The servant is going to come and he's going to establish and bring God's judgments, God's word, God's word of grace and of truth to the nations. That's why in verse 6, in a different way, but essentially the same way, God describes his mission like this. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. What is God saying but that the nations are spiritually blind, they're prisoners in darkness because of their ignorance of the word of God, because of the idolatry that results from that ignorance. One commentator has put it beautifully like this in describing this idolatry. He said, insisting on making reality a mirror of ourselves, we have plunged ourselves into darkness. Not being self-originating, we nevertheless try to explain the origin of things in terms of ourselves. Not being self-existent, we try to explain the end of all things in terms of ourselves. And the result is predictable. Existence becomes an endless cycle that comes from nowhere and goes nowhere. And that's why God has sent his servant who brings salvation and rescue to those who are lost, to those who are in chains because of their ignorance and sin The servant himself is a light for the nations. He is, Isaiah says, God's covenant for them. That is, all the blessings of God's covenant revelation, all of his covenant promises, all of his covenant obligations are embodied in the servant and are dispensed by him and through him. The servant is the truth of God incarnate, which again, should like just, you know, bells should be ringing off. (laughs) Jesus is the servant. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. He is the prophet greater than Moses. He is the one who makes the blind to see. He is the one who looses the prisoner's chains by the word of his salvation. And he doesn't just do this for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He does it for men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All the ends of the earth need the revelation of God, the justice of God, the light of God's word, in which the salvation of God through his servant's son is made known. Jesus has come. The word has been made flesh and has dwelt among us so that we might be restored in our relationship to God. And now how does Jesus bring his word to the world now? Well, he does it through us. Through his servants. What did he say to his apostles, to his church and the great commission? Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The justice, the judgments of God, the Torah, the instruction of God. It's because we are in Jesus, who is the light of the world, that Jesus can say in Matthew 5, 14, you, the church, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. We bring the word of God. The justice of God is revealed in his law and gospel. We bring the truth so that the nations might be set free from their idolatrous blindness and slavery to sin and might serve God in righteousness and in holiness all of their days. So we must behold God's servants Because God delights in him, because uh, his mission is glorious, and thirdly, because his character is gentle. And how I wish that I had sort of a whole sermon just to focus on this last point, because it is so rich and so beautiful. Look at verses 2 and 3. Of this servant, God declares, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You see, this servant is unlike Cyrus, the servant who would deliver Israel from exile. You can read about him in chapter 41. This servant of God is not noisy, he's not ostentatious. He doesn't come in royal pomp or power or proclamation. Rather, he is unassuming, he is quiet. He doesn't call attention to himself. Rather, he proclaims the truth softly and unaggressively and uncombatively. We don't have time to turn to it, but I encourage you to go and, and look at Matthew chapter 12. Right after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees begin to conspire to destroy him. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was aware of this, and so he withdrew But then Matthew tells us that many people followed him, and he was healing all who were sick, but he was warning them not to make him known publicly. Don't tell anyone who I am. And then Matthew writes this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is the servant of God who comes without self-advertising, who comes without sort of a loud, you know, um, his personality just dominates the room sort of thing. He comes humbly, quietly, but he also comes gently. And some of the most precious words in all the Bible, Isaiah describes the character of our Savior, these striking word pictures. He doesn't break the bruised reed, He doesn't quench or put out the faintly, the dimly burning wick. When I was in Tennessee pastoring up in Cookville, uh, there were a few years where I grew a row garden, a small little garden, and it was big enough to have a few rows of corn. And one night after my stalks had already grown up tall, they were were thick, they had, you know, corn was already on them, uh, a big storm came through. And I go out the next morning, and every single one of my corn stalks is like this, literally parallel, lying on the ground. And I'm not a gardener. I grew up in the city. And right? I'm like, they're dead. Like, I've killed them, right? You know, I didn't do something right. And, and so I'm thinking, what do I do? And, and, and fortunately, there were a lot of gardeners in our church. And so I called, like, is this normal? Like, is it over? Is it dead? Like, is all the corn going to just rot there on the ground? Like, what do I do? Do I just yank it up from the ground and say, oh, well, better luck like next year? They said, no, 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 no it's fine. There's nothing broken. It's bruised. Yes, it's the, the stalk is bent and, and it's, it's a bruise, but it's not broken. Therefore, you just need to sort of pick it back up, pull some dirt around it, right, and get it growing straight again. Eventually, it's going to continue to bear much fruit. And so we did eat well that summer. Now, I tell you that story because it's a picture of who we are. We are the bruised reed, the bruised stalk. We are the fire that's about to go out, that's, that's smoldering, that's sort of just burning. All you see is embers. We are those who are weak and wounded by the fall, often at the end of ourselves because of our sin and our folly. And what does Jesus do? As the servant, Jesus gently binds us up in strength. He fans into fl- flame our hearts again. He gives us hope and life in himself. He is gentle and lowly. He gives us rest for our weary and heavy-laden souls. Jesus is a gentle servant. And just as Christ, the servant's son, so we are to reflect his humility and his gentleness. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive as prisoners by him to do his will. Now, yes, Timothy there is speaking, or Paul is speaking there of of, of gospel ministers but the truth of gentleness in ministry applies to all of us. We are not to draw attention to ourself. It's not about us. We are not to, to break the bruised reed or put out the dimly burning wick. Rather, we are to help the weak sheep. We're to have compassion on those who are struggling. We're to bring the word of God to the lost in gentleness and in humility. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ, look to this servant. If you're not in Jesus Christ, if you aren't trusting Him, look to this servant, behold this servant, He is your salvation. And if you are His, serve as He has served you in the strength that he supplies by His Holy Spirit. I hope you see that we've just begun to scratch the surface of this text. it is so rich, it is so good. May the Lord bless us in these coming weeks as we continue to unpack the identity, the the character, the nature, the mission of our great servant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come to save us from our sins by his suffering. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for sending your Son as your servant and for giving us these words of prophecy and prediction so that we might know Jesus better, that we might know ourselves better. Lord Jesus, thank you for serving us. We didn't deserve to be served, but you came. You found us in our weakness. You found us in our sin, and you did not break us. You bound us up. Lord, you came and you fanned into flame the dimly burning wick that was our heart and our life. Oh Lord, would you do that even this day for those who do not know you? Would you grant to us all a confidence and a comfort and assurance in your work. We pray this, O Lord, because we love you, and we love you because you first loved us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.